House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You are back in the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren, of course, sitting at the controls, and co-hosting today is David North Martino. I am here. <laughs> yeah, you are. I and am. and and I Crazy. was on t- I was on TV last night. How was that? That was awesome. <laughs> it was. It was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it turned out okay. Yeah. I, but I'm better than Donnie Wahlberg. Come on. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yeah. uh, we should have mentioned very scary people. Yeah. So if you haven't seen it, go uh, go watch that episode. It was funny because I was getting emails saying that you didn't look that scary. <laughs> Like how rude. Yeah, um, well, so now we have a returning guest, and we're going to be talking about a crime that happens out in your neck of the woods. And I'd be surprised if you weren't involved. I was. Don't tell anybody that. <laughs> no, it's just between you and me. Yeah, don't let anybody know. We won't. We won't let them. We won't. You just keep it closed. <laughs> so now, uh, returning to the show, we have Maureen Boyle. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. I always love being on your show. Well, you're the only one. <laughs> no. Well, I appreciate having you on, and, and uh, you do good work. And you're, So this is the, your latest book. Now, it's coming out June 1st, so that will be uh, tomorrow for, for the listeners in L.A. Um, now, the book is called The Ghost. Yes, The Ghost, um, the... Uh, murder of police chief Greg Adams and the hunt for his killer. Um, how did you come across this case? Well, the uh, killer in this case uh, was in was originally from this area, and uh, after my first book, uh, Shallow Graves, uh, came out, uh, I was looking for the subject of another for an, a second book. And this uh, on this case, which was uh, an interesting cold case, it was a solved but unsolved um, cold cold case. Uh, by that I mean uh, Greg Adams was a police chief in the small uh, community of Saxonburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, he was uh, 31 years old when he made a traffic stop, and he was killed. He was about a block and a half away from the police station, not too, uh, about two or three weeks before Christmas. And the killer took off. Uh, very quickly, the police were able to um, identify the likely killer. And it took a few days to do that um, because the killer dropped his driver's license, but the driver's license wasn't under his own name. And it this is 1980, and in this that pre-computer era, everything had to be done by hand or by footwork. And uh, state police investigators fanned throughout the region and throughout the states uh, to track down who the person was, the name that was on that uh, driver's license. And once they identified the person, then it was a matter of trying to find him. Uh, and it, it took quite a while um, to be able to trace where he had been, where he had gone. He was the 
uh, in his time, think of Whitey Bulger. Right. Uh, Whitey Bulger was a mobster out of uh, Boston who uh, took off, and he was on the top 10, FBI's top 10 most wanted list. Well, uh, this individual, uh, Donald Webb, who is uh, the killer, was in some ways the Whitey Bulger of his time. Uh, police throughout the region were looking for him. The FBI had him in their sights, uh, trying to identify where he was. And uh, a lot of work went into it, but it took uh, quite a long time to come to what I call a very startling conclusion. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite the case. Um, how do you choose a case like this? Like when it, when, because this is not the only murder that's around that area. So um, what is it about this case that, that uh, drew you in? Um, secrets. Uh, I find secrets really intriguing. And my first book, uh, Shallow Graves, A Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Serial Killer, uh, which uh, detailed the uh, killings, uh, the disappearance of 11 women in, the, in 1988 uh, in the, out of the com uh, community of New Bedford, which is a fishing port. And New Bedford's a very small community, very tight-knit community, and I've always felt that the killer is from that area, and someone in the community knows who the killer is, and they're holding on to the secret. Um, and when this story came up, uh, I was drawn to it because of the secret. Um, how could a Donald Webb elude authorities for so long? Who, who held his secret? Because he couldn't do it alone. And I, I found it really fascinating trying to just pull apart uh, who he was, um, and the effect that the murder had on the community of Saxonburg, and most importantly, uh, the effect that it had on the police chief's family, because at the time he had two small children. Yeah, and that was a small town, or still, you know, there was only like, what, 1,200, 1,300 people there? Yes, and, and it's still it's a lovely, lovely community. If anyone is in that, that part of Pennsylvania, I really urge you to swing by Saxonburg. It is, it is like Mayberry, USA. It is just a, a lovely, lovely, very homey, warm community. So that must have really shocked them, right? Because this is a small place, like you said, Mayberry, so everyone knows everyone, and uh, not a whole lot goes on. You know, no, not much. Like this, right? Yeah, not much at all. Um, I mean, when I when we went to Saxonburg, went to, to Saxonburg twice for roughly a week at a time uh, to do research, and I was really struck by the number of people who remembered the chief uh, and how the community really rallied uh, to keep his memory alive. He was never forgotten, and the fact that the killer had not been caught never left them. And uh, that uh, is something very, very special that not a lot of communities have. How is that? But when you go, I, I understand because I've, I've been out and in, investigated crimes in person. So how is it for you when you go out and you go to a town like that and you start digging up um, such a bad thing that happened 
uh, were people pretty supportive and, and, and very open? Uh, yes, they were very, very supportive. Um, I had the I had uh, spoken to many of the uh, people in the community prior to this and let them know know, know that I'd be going down there. Uh, so I didn't just show up one day in Saxonburg and say, "Hey, here I am. I'm here to you know uh, talk to everyone about this case." I first went down there for a dedication, uh, a street dedication in honor of the chief. And, uh, you know, prior to that, I had interviewed uh, most of the people, uh, or a good number of the people uh, for the book, and then went back down, went down there both for the dedication to meet people in person and to talk to them uh, more in depth and to meet other people and to actually see the, the areas uh, where this crime took place, to see where the chief once lived, to see where the police department is, to see where the crime uh, happened. It was um, really, it was, it was important, as people say, to show up. Um, and because I had been a newspaper reporter uh, for so long, I, um, I'm used to doing those cold calls and uh, just talking to people uh, out of the blue. I was not intimidated by that at all. We always hear about uh, the killer. Um, did you find out what the, how the, what the chief was like? The chief was the, the complete opposite of the, um, of the killer. Uh, the chief was good. He was the light to the killer's darkness, if you will. Uh, he was worked hard, uh, was a family man, uh, really dedicated to his family and his extended family. Uh, he taught at the police academy. Uh, he was a small-town boy. He had uh, moved to Washington at one point, but just really was drawn back home. He he did everything right, and and that's the horror I think of it all. That here is someone who did everything right, and this is what the re this is what happened to him, um, and he did not get the justice uh, initially that that he well deserved. So when we talk about the murder itself, um, yes. I find it quite striking because. Um, the way I understand it is um, uh, the chief had uh, stopped the, the killer, but we didn't know he was the killer at the time, but he had stopped him in a parking lot of, I believe, a feed store or something. Yep. And, so anyway, I was going to say, but, um, it, you know, a, a scuffle happened, and then then the actual culprit or bad guy actually got out of the car and beat him as well, the cop, after shooting him. Now, do, do we know why it got so heated? That, well, at, at the time, Donald Webb was wanted in New York. Uh, he had skipped out on bail up in New York, and the theory is that possibly he thought that he didn't want to go back to jail, and he thought that the chief would run a you know, check on him, and he'd be uh, he'd be caught. However, this was 1980, um, 
And the technology that police officers have today is not the technology that they had back then in terms of checking uh, licenses. And the license that Donald Webb was using was a phony. So even if, this is where I find the heartbreaking part of all of this, even if the chief had checked the license, called in, it wouldn't have come back to a Donald Webb who was, um, who was wanted. Um, and like a full check probably would have taken so much longer, it, Webb would have been gone. So that's what makes the killing so, I mean, all so senseless. All killings are senseless, but how this all broke down is just appalling. And it's heartbreaking. So, so exactly, maybe you can explain the actual killing part because I I didn't do it very well. But so, what what actually happened that night? He, well, what 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 is believed to have happened? Because no one knows exactly what happened then, but it's believed that for whatever reason, uh, the chief pulled uh, Donald Webb over, and he they pulled into the parking lot of an Agway. Uh, which is off of one of the main streets. It was a, a, a side street off of the main street of uh, town, uh, about a block and a half away from the police station. And, you know, he may have run a stop sign. He may have been speeding. Uh, that's kind of unclear. And when he, he pulled them over, uh, the way the cars were believed to have been uh, stopped, uh, it wasn't quite the way law enforcement uh, generally are trained to stop them. But the, the, so the two of them are in the vehicle. The chief gets out of the car, goes up to the vehicle. Obviously, there, he has uh, the license, which is under the name of a Stanley Portis. Uh, and he is believed to have possibly gone back or was going towards the back to his vehicle. And something happened. There was a scuffle. It's not known if Webb came out and attacked the chief or the chief tried to take him into custody. There's, it's just not clear exactly what happened in those, that initial moment. What is known is that there was a vicious, vicious struggle that went from the parking lot to some homes that were right next to the parking lot the backyards of the homes, uh, a vicious struggle, a, uh, shots were fired, and a young boy who was home from school heard what sounded like someone hitting a tree, like a bang, bang, bang. And then he heard someone yelling, help me, help me. Um, the, the boy was home from school because he was ill, and he called down to his mother. His mother was like, oh, come on, what's going on here? Uh, and they look out the window. They don't see anything initially. They look out another window, and they see a figure outside. Uh, they go outside. Um, the mom uh, tells her son to go dial 911, and she recognizes the person in the backyard as uh, the police chief, and he's telling her, help me, help me. Uh, and what they 
didn't realize he was he was dying at that moment. He had been shot and fatally wounded. Wow. There was there was the blood found both of the chief and the suspect at the scene. And uh, based on that, law enforcement had believed that perhaps the chief had also shot the suspect. And right after that, everything was shut down around town. Uh, state police were called out. Uh, local police, now this is a very small department, so state police were there uh, immediately because uh, the barracks was in the town next door. They've got helicopters in the air. Uh, troopers in the area, they're blocking off all the roads. Uh, and the killer just seemed to have vanished. Uh, they had a description of the vehicle. No one saw the vehicle after it left the scene. And it's, it, it took a couple of days before they were able to identify uh, the killer as Donald Webb, who was from, uh, was living in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Oh. Do we know what he was doing in that area? Like why he uh, came through Saxonburg? He, yeah, he was a, a low-level mobster. He had a crew out of uh, Fall River, Massachusetts, which was a city near New Bedford. Uh, and they would go from community to community, uh, not in their home state, uh, they would go outside, states away, where no one knew them. Uh, and they would uh, burglarize uh, jewelry stores, uh, houses that had a lot of um, fine goods. Uh, they did a lot of uh, scams. They, uh, so they would, they would do that and, and break into houses uh, in, in New York, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Delaware, New York, um, and, you know, other communities south. They would go all over uh, doing this and then come back and fence the goods. Oh. So how did they actually tie it to Donald Webb? Like, what was it, that, that, what was the clue that they, they got? It was the uh, driver's license, but it wasn't that easy. They had to... Uh, peel back uh, multiple layers to get to his identification because it all had to be by hand. It was all, you know, talking to people because things were not computerized. Yeah. Um, and they discovered uh, through a series of events, which I document in the book, uh, that he... His real name was not Stanley Portis, but Donald Webb. Um, it had to do with a number of uh, the, oh, the vehicle that he was renting. So they were able to peel back these layers and finally peel back deep enough um, and discover that uh, Stanley Portis was really Donald Webb. And that, that took a couple of days, actually more than a week, before they really narrowed down who uh, who he was. Yeah, it was the dark And age. during that period of time, he was uh, able to really scoot out of the area. It's believed that he, right after the killing, he, he left uh, Pennsylvania and went right to Massachusetts. And then he just disappeared. Was he known as a killer? Like, he had he killed before? No, he was... Uh, 
not considered a violent offender, uh, per se. He was a type of person who was uh, robbed things, not at gunpoint, except for a bank robbery. Um, but generally, he would, uh, they would break into stores, uh, jewelry stores, homes, things like that, uh, looking for items that they could uh, turn over very, very quickly. It wasn't a, a, he wasn't a confrontational uh, robber. So he was not known as a killer. Hmm. He did have some ties uh, to the Rhode Island mob, uh, but just very loose ties because he was uh, selling a lot of his goods there. It seems like it's quite a, it, it's quite a violent um, murder as well. Um, for someone that hadn't done any killing before, like it, 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 I wonder if was he like a drug addict, or do we know? No, he wasn't a drug addict, um, and and that's what's what's interesting that he was not known not known at least as a killer, uh, was not known as being uh, violent until that that moment. So we're not sure what the uh, what. The, the twist was in there, and most likely it was that he did not want to return to prison, and that was the impetus to, to this. Um, yeah. And the, the police chief, while he was a very slight man, he was known as a fighter. He was not going to go down, and he was not someone who would be intimidated. So the confrontation between the two should not have been deadly, but it did turn out to be that way, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's, it, it was, what, what I find fascinating, at, you know, uh, with this case is how the law enforcement, the process of the law enforcement and how they were able to step by meticulous step first identify Donald Webb in a, t in a time when there weren't surveillance cameras all over the place. You know, when it, there wasn't, uh, searches were not done by computer. You didn't find names with a, you know, a click of a button. You had to go knocking on doors. And they went knocking on doors. The state police uh, fanned out to uh, two to two and th then later three, then later four states initially. Uh, Number one, to identify uh, the killer, get his real name. And then once they had an idea of uh, earlier on, an I idea that there may be a link to Massachusetts, uh, that was when the FBI stepped in in New Bedford because they had a New Bedford office. And then things seemed to both come together and fall apart. He had to uh, also hide out from the uh, the mob itself, uh, the Patriarca family, or was he not connected enough? Like when he disappeared? Um, well, that that was what was up in the air. I don't think I honestly don't think he was connected enough uh, for it to matter, uh, and I don't think that he uh, he was running from them. I think he was afraid of going to prison for the rest mm. of his life. The, would the uh, Patriarcha family have killed him? I don't know. It depends on if there, he uh, did some other things that warranted him not 
uh, remaining with the living. But but he he wasn't uh, he wasn't I don't think he was connected enough for it to matter. They had other people out there to deal with. So was Donald Webb married or had kids or anything at the time that he uh, killed the uh, police chief? Yeah, he he was originally from um, the Oklahoma area and had had lived in the western part of the state. But when he joined the service, he uh, came to Massachusetts, where he eventually stayed um, and, of course, did time. Uh, and he eventually married a young widow who had a small child, and that's who he was married to at the time of, of the killing. Uh, and they did go knocking on her door, uh, trying to, uh, you know, find him at her house, and she insisted that he wasn't there. And uh, it turns out he actually was not at her house uh, when they came knocking on the door uh, in the initial part of the investigation. But they, they kept they kept his wife under a fairly close watch in those early days and weeks and, and months. Uh, but they were not able to locate him, and he did not appear to be to have gone to her house in the initial phase of the investigation. Even when, once uh, Pennsylvania uh, State Police came up to Massachusetts uh, to go tracking uh, where uh, Donald Webb might be. His, his uh, stepson was, uh, it, it turns out the alias that Donald Webb was using was his wife's first husband's name, uh, Stanley Portis. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so he's using, he's using his, uh, his, his wife's dead husband's name as, as one of his many aliases. And he, uh, used, he had a, a license uh, and that was that license that was uh, found at, at the crime scene. So initially they were looking for Stanley Portis, who, not knowing that Stanley Portis had been long dead. Hmm. Well, it, so the way he got away with this, in the fact that he changed his name and he had quite a few aliases and, and uh, did all these low-level crimes, does that indicate that there's probably a lot of other people out there like him doing, doing the same thing back then? Yes. Yes. Um, back then, there was not, uh, and, and it was really well documented in the 1980s, it was a, this was a major problem. Uh, back then, criminals, really violent uh, criminals uh, who were wanted were often, or occasionally, and sometimes often, stopped by police but because there wasn't a central uh, database uh, for those that were wanted, um, they, they would get a ticket and then go off. So, and, and in some cases, they would be using their own name. So there was, uh, it, this happened uh, quite often. There was, a, there was a number of cases in California. Uh, there's been cases documented in the 1980s throughout the country where uh, people who were wanted were stopped by police, but the officers were unaware that the individual was, uh, was wanted because uh, there was no way to, uh, to, 
find their, find out that they were that they were wanted because there wasn't a central database at that time. It was very very spotty. All right. So now you mentioned the FBI. So they got involved in this. What brought them into the case, and and what did they do? Um, the FBI had always been involved in it, but you know, as the decades passed, and this was decades, um, it was the there was a couple of uh, FBI agents who were very very active. They were also active in the Whitey Bulger case, and this case. They heard about it, and it really bothered them that uh, Donald Webb had not been been found, had not been located, had not been brought to justice. Uh, here is someone that was on the top ten most wanted, and somehow he just eluded authorities. He killed a police chief, uh, and he's still out there. So they made it their mission to uh, to find him, and the path that they took wound up involving, in, in some interesting ways, uh, the Pennsylvania State Police, uh, prosecutors in Pennsylvania, prosecutors in Bristol County here in Massachusetts, uh, the Attorney General's Office here, uh, and, of course, the FBI. Uh, there was teams from the State Police and Massachusetts State Police in Pennsylvania and the FBI all working together, and working together really well, without any ego, uh, to, in this shared mission to identify where Donald Webb was and to, to finally put the case to a close. And that's why they were able to do it. And they all worked together so very, very well. There was, as I said, there wasn't any egos. They were all giving each other credit, and particularly with the FBI. Uh, the main FBI, one of, one of the main FBI agents, because if I say the FBI agent, he would get very upset because he's, he was, always says there's so many people that were involved. Uh, Tommy McDonald, um, he, everyone says he was one of the driving forces of the case. Uh, he would say, oh, no, so-and-so helped me and so-and-so helped me and there's this person and there's that person um, because that's the type of person, individual and investigator he is, always sharing the credit, knowing that with a case this large, it's a team that will help solve it. And that is what happened. It was everyone working together. And it, it was just so impressive um, I know that there had been a number of conspiracy theories, as there always is in any case uh, involving the, uh, involving uh, the, what I can say the disappearance of uh, Donald's web. You know, was he in protective custody? Was he like Whitey Bulger? You know, telling on the mob, and that is, as in all conspiracy theories, very often they aren't true. Um, and in this case, uh, from all the research that I did, I could honestly say there was no, you know, conspiracy to keep Donald's web hidden from justice. But and it was, but the end, the ending of it, and the conclusion of the case really highlights that. I mean, I really cannot say enough about the work that uh, Tommy McDonald, uh, Phil Torsney. Uh, and a host of other 
uh, FBI agents, past and present, uh, put into this case. I mean, going back to, you know, the 1980s and the investigators uh, there, how they work together, the FBI investigators and the state police, how, how well they work together uh, was really amazing and really goes against the, the talk today that, you know, the FBI doesn't cooperate. Uh, and, and in this case, they did. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's um, yeah, there's been a lot of negative press, you know, about all that uh, policing and stuff like that. It's, it's hard right now. And even journalism. So it, it's, a, it's a tough time for a lot of people. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting, though. I, I, I mean, I believe it was aliens. Aliens came down. And <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? That would have been, if it happened today, that would have been one of the theories. And you know what? There may be some people out there who would say that was it. You know, and there were weird theories at that <laughs> point that, uh, you know, Donald Webb was in protective custody, that he was on an island someplace, you know, uh, uh, sipping a drink. He was, you know, in a foreign country, uh, that he had another family, that he was dead. I and mean, there was just so many theories out there of what happened to him because it was just so odd that he could just vanish. And that's was, what it appeared. That he just he, vanished. He was hanging on an island with Elvis. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it, was, it wasn't too long after yeah. that. Elvis was in that 77 or something that he... Yeah. <laughs> he died, so he didn't really die. He's hanging on an island with him. Come on. I mean, there, there was even a, one theory that because the chief had worked in D.C. and he had done some undercover work, that somehow um, he, <laughs> in, in some of his arrests down there, the drug dealers hunted him down years later in Saxonburg and killed him. That was another, another theory that was uh, thrown out there. Did Hillary Clinton do it? <laughs> if it happened today, it would be said that it, that somehow she would have been involved. She's in, she's blamed for everything. <laughs> yeah, she was, she did it. She made a phone yeah. call and it was done. Yeah. Yeah. No, oh, it's crazy. I know. It's it's hard to deal with that sort of stuff. Um, so what is it? Did you you know doing this whole case and getting the book written? Um, was there anything that you took away that you sort of learned? about law enforcement and these kinds of crimes that you didn't really know before? Well, the, this was the first time that I did FOIA requests for FBI files. Um, and what I did learn is that it takes a real long time to get uh, <laughs> FOIA mm. requests answered uh, because it has to go through the uh, a whole process and that you really have to be very specific in what areas you're looking for in a case because it it can get uh, overly very very expensive, uh, and it, you may not get the right information. So you have to, you kind of have to know the information that you're looking for before you ask for it. Sort of like lawyers when they're uh, quizzing witnesses on the stand, you know, they they know what the answer is going to be, but they need to have it on the record. Uh, that was one thing uh, that I learned from all of this. Uh, the other thing about law enforcement, I had a good idea from covering uh, police and covering the courts as a, a daily journalist for so many years. But what I did learn from all of this is, and, and this was a good thing, uh, how 
interagencies do cooperate because of the that feeling. And I, I had always been told by different cops that, you know, the feds won't won't tell you if your pants are on fire, that, you know, that type of thing, that they, that they won't give you any information. Uh, and in this case, that wasn't what happened. Uh, from the point of, uh, of the killing from in uh, Pennsylvania, what I discovered is how close uh, members of law enforcement from different agencies really are. For example, the FBI uh, resident agent office uh, in Pennsylvania, one of the agents there was good friends with a, a state trooper who was also investigating the case. Uh, he was also friends with the agent who was in uh, New Bedford at the time. And that agent was close friends with uh, a couple of people in the state police who were also involved in the investigation. So it really is more of a close circle than, um, than walled off uh, fortresses in, in some, in, at least in this case. There, that may be different in some other cases, but, yeah. well, uh, but I, not, I, not here. And, and I, was, I was very pleased to, um, to see and hear about that level of cooperation. And, and there was no bad-mouthing of each agency, uh, for yeah. the most part. Well, that's because that group over there where you are, it's, it's, they're all body-snatched, right? They're aliens. <laughs> and they all know each other from another planet. So, it's, it's, you know, they, there is no separation there. They know what's going on. They don't even have to talk. <laughs> yeah, <they> were, <laughs> but you know, it, it it did give me an insight, even more of an insight to uh, some of the barriers that law enforcement face in being able to to get information and to get suspects. Uh, because when you under the law, there's a lot of things law uh, police and other members of law enforcement cannot do uh, and that can be a barrier to finding a, a suspect because legally there's certain things they cannot do. Um, they can't go barging into a house without a warrant. You can't get a warrant without a judge signing off and you can't get a judge to sign off on it unless you have probable cause and the probable cause has to be really detailed. Um, so you can't just say I want to do something you have to show why and that there's a reason for it and whatever you're looking for would be there. Uh, so there's, and it, I, I think people will come away oh, after reading the book, a better understanding of how things work in real life uh, as opposed to how we want things to work, uh, especially when it comes to policing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I was just going to ask that what you wanted or expected or hoped that people would get after reading the book. So that's kind of the main point there. Yes, and, and, and I think uh, they, they will come away with a much better understanding of law enforcement, uh, but they'll also come away with a sense of, uh, of hope, I hope, um, a hope that, you know, 
things do work out sort of at the end, um, that communities do work together, that people care. Um, and that was just so clear when I um, first stepped into the uh, town of Saxonburg, that people in the community still remembered the chief, um, you know, decades later. Uh, they still were looking for answers. Uh, they still honored him every year. They did not forget. And they really kept his memory alive. And that was, that was tragically refreshing. And I say tragically because, you know, we are talking about the, the death of a, of a young uh, police chief and a young father. It was refreshing that to know that people don't forget. They don't forget that they're dead. They don't forget um, that a killer is out there. And they don't give up hope that things will work out. And, you know, sometimes things don't work out the way you hope they, they would, but they do work out the way they have to. Um, and that, mm -hmm. that was something that, that I learned from all of this. Yeah. And the, together, the togetherness of the community is just so, uh, it, it, it really makes you feel good about uh, your fellow uh, fellow man. Now, this was all prior to the pandemic, and the I'm glad I was there before the world turned upside down uh, because I was really able to see what a wonderful community the uh, the chief had had served. Mm. Yeah, and it's important right now. Uh, because people get lost in this sea of hate, you know, all this stuff about, you know, cops and all this, you know, it, people are calling each other names all the time. And I think the, the bottom line is that there's, there's, uh, it's, it's about people and there are good people and bad people. And that's in every business, whether they're police, radio guys, whether they're writers, you're going to come across people that care and then people that don't. So, you know, rather than to just put them all in one spot. Um, to realize that it's, it's it's the type of person that you're dealing with, you know, um, and, and COVID, that didn't happen. That's not real, is it? <laughs> uh, you tell that to the people who died, you know, their families. Yeah, that's, well, I know. But that's, 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 that's a perfect example. You know, it's just uh, people get lost in this, you know, hollow cause of something. And, uh, yeah. It's about feelings. So it's good to have a story like this that, that yeah. kind of highlights that there are good people in in policing and in, in the world do it, trying to do the right thing. So that's important. And, and, you know, and we have to remember that life is all about the middle um, and what I call the gray area. Uh, often uh, when things happen, there's reasons why they happen, and you have to look at the root causes, and that, that's what I was looking at when I examined uh, Donald Webb's life to see how he got to this point, uh, to the day of the killing, you know, his background, uh, to understand him uh, and to understand the chief, to understand the community, and to understand how things could could 
crashed together uh, so tragically. Because, you know, we're always looking for that quick, simple answer. And what you discover, and what I discovered through this book and uh, also with Shallow Graves is sometimes answers are not easily gotten and they are not simple. They never are. Um, as much as we would like to in this era of instant gratification, instant answers where you know something with a few, you know, a clicks on the keyboard, um, in life it's often not that way. And that's what you just, I discovered uh, with uh, my research with the, and talking to people uh, with this book, The Ghost, is that you have to, life is on the edges. Uh, life is in the middle. It's not, not cut and dry. It's never simple. And, and that's what I really hope to, to bring out in the book. Uh, Hmm. how Donald Webb got to where he was, um, how the chief came to cross paths with him, and the, the consequences for the community, the consequences for his family, uh, consequences for law enforcement, and everyone who was touched by this case. And there were just so many people that were touched by this case. What Even do you think, more than, than I spoke with. What do you think the biggest surprise was for you in doing this? Um, the, probably, other than how the case ended, uh, but we won't get into that, uh, <laughs> there'll be no spoilers here, um, the biggest surprise probably was that the, the secret was kept for so long, um, and for that I was very, very, uh, disappointed uh, with all the people who may have kept uh, Webb's secret. Um, there's one or two people that you could say, okay, we understand that, but I suspect there is many more who knew and didn't come forward. And in a community like um, the, the greater New Bedford community, that was, I think, really disappointing. Because it left this family, the chief's family, hanging for so long. So that that was the my big takeaway, and you know my biggest disappointment when I got some of those answers. Wow! So now, um, do you have a website and a place that people can come find you? Yes, it would be um, MaureenBoyleWriter dot com. Okay, and we'll have that up on our website for people. Um, yeah, and they can also follow me on, uh, I have an author's uh, Facebook page, uh, Maureen Boyle Writer, uh, and also there's a Facebook page for uh, the book, which is uh, The Ghost, The Murder of Police Chief Greg Adams and the Hunt for His Killer. Yeah, and that'll be on our page too. People can do one click and pick it up if yeah. you're listening <laughs> online. Hey, uh, yeah. So when you write something like this too, um, I don't know about you, but I know I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility when you're writing a true true case with people that are still around, still alive, that were involved or part of it. Um, 
that, that must be um, the hardest part of the write, writing this book for you, or is it something else? No, that that is to do the, do both the those that are living and those that are dead justice, um, and getting to the heart of the story. Uh, but yeah, writing about people who are still living, uh, I did go back to many of the investigators uh, multiple times uh, for fact checking and to make sure that I got. Uh, some of the nuances correct, um, making sure that I had everything, particularly in Pennsylvania, correct in terms of townships and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and that that was that was one element of, of it. But but going back to your question about uh, talking to the, and doing justice to the people who are, are living, I mean this this case was a huge part of their lives. And they want the, the world to know what they did. Um, this is their legacy, for, uh, and it's it is very very important legacy. Uh, it's an important story. They they made a difference. Um, um, so, what and they're all very proud of what they did. Uh, a little bit sad that it was this. It was a case involving someone who has been killed, a police chief who has been killed, but they are still proud that they were able to uh, to bring it to a conclusion. Mm. So what's up next for you? I'm working on uh, researching now. I think I'm crazy. Uh, at least I think my family thinks I'm crazy. Uh, I'm doing research on two other books, uh, one uh, set in Pennsylvania, and one that's set up here in Massachusetts. Yeah, that's a pretty wicked state there in Massachusetts. Eh? A lot of <laughs> a lot of bad stuff going on there. Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're going to find it any anywhere. You find it in the small towns. And you know, I was on a uh, interviewed on a documentary recently uh, about uh, the Fall River cult murders. And um, I mean, that's that's a whole other weird uh, weird uh, case. Uh, that came up here even before I, I arrived into Massachusetts. But, you know, you go into any community and you'll, there, there is always something weird under yeah. the surface. Whether oh. it's recent or decades later, there's always something there. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a good thing. And so you've got, um, you avoided the COVID. Has, has the COVID sort of affected you in, in your writing of the new books now or what you're doing now? Uh well, I had, I was very lucky with the ghost. I had all of my, a good, all of my research done. I was go, just going back, which was one of those things where I should go back to the library and check, double check this or look at this or, oh, maybe I can look at the this other thing. But it sort of forced me to sit and finish it. Uh, with the other two books, uh, during the, sh- the shutdown, I was able to do a lot of uh, phone interviews and Zoom interviews with, with people. And that passed the day both for them and for me. So I was able to get uh, some uh, research done on both of those yeah. Uh, well, but but, but just the whole. I I, I, was, I was thinking too, like um, with the world the way it is, like just with all the turmoil going on, you know, all the stuff happening the last couple of years. Um, does that seep into your writing? Do you think? Do you, do you sort of get 
kind of down on the way you write? The well, because my recent books were set in the past. Uh, the uh, you know I, I'm going back in time, uh, so in some ways it's a little bit easier. Uh, although during the COVID, the whole shutdown, it can be a bit depressing because you're not seeing people and you're just surrounded by you're surrounded by death, if you will. Uh, so as a result, I to clear my head, I watch very bad TV. You know, I watch old sitcoms. <laughs> Um, I watch Dragnet in the morning, which is, you know, I encourage people to watch Dragnet because they were really, the show was really ahead of its time. When you, when you, if you really watch and analyze it, they covered every conceivable topic that's pertinent to today back then. Ah, so there you go. Well, yeah, people, people laugh about it, but you laugh at the show, uh, because it's kind of campy, uh, but they did tackle some really serious subjects. That's all I watch is old shows. So there, <laughs> yeah, me TV all day long. Uh, <laughs> well, it's been an, it's been a great conversation. We've learned a lot, and um, um, certainly it's been a pleasure having you on. And and God, I I didn't realize Hillary Clinton was involved way back then. Um, but we <laughs> we appreciate finding out. So now the book. The Ghost, and it's the, the, mur the murder of police chief Greg Adams. And, and the hunt for his killer. You got it. And our guest today was Maureen Boyle, who's the researcher and author. Thank you for being on the show. Okay, and thank you. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having me on, as always. Thanks, Maureen. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.